Hello and welcome to The Hive Podcast with me, Natalina Hai. In this fifth season, I'll be exploring how we can change the ways in which we relate to and structure our existing systems so that we can build towards a more resilient future. From alternative economic models and business practices to our role in and perception of the more than human world, this season will explore how we might design ways of living that both enrich and sustain all forms of life, not just our own. For more information, you can find additional resources and links at natalinahigh.com forward slash The Hive Podcast. And you can also reach out to me on Twitter, Instagram, and LinkedIn at Natalina High. Thanks for listening, and I hope you enjoy the show. Today, I have the pleasure of speaking with Simon Hill, CEO and co-founder of Wizoku, a tech company that helps businesses unlock the nascent innovation potential of their employees, partners and customers the world over. An angel investor, author and speaker on topics relating to collaborative innovation, crowdsourcing, co-creation and entrepreneurship, Simon also advises several B2B and B2C early stage tech businesses, and he has received many awards and nominations for his tech leadership over the years. Wazoku is a company that sits at the forefront of workplace innovation, and they've worked with organisations such as Waitrose, HSBC and Barclays, and they're currently in the process of becoming B Corp certified. Their mission, to change the world one idea at a time, is expressed through their core product, Idea Spotlight, which encourages businesses to embrace the principles of design thinking and challenge-lead innovation to help people crowdsource ideas from anywhere. So I first met Simon many moons ago on the tech scene in London, I think actually before he set up his business in 2011. And when he told me about their recent work moving in the field of purpose and profit and sustainability and regenerative futures, I couldn't resist interviewing him here for the podcast. It's been a while since we last touched upon tech and innovation in the series, so I hope you'll enjoy this conversation as much as I did. So, Simon, one of my longtime friends, thank you so much for joining me here on the show. Good to be here. So I'd like to start by asking you the question that I ask all my guests, and that is, from your perspective, what do you think is happening in the global human psyche right now? Right, right into the deep end. So, first of all, thank you. It is a deep pleasure and a deep honour to be on your your highly revered podcast, Natalie. Thank <laughs> you. I come at this from a from a number of angles. Right, my interest and focus at the moment is is really about how we can rebuild and regenerate through the mechanisms of innovation and collective intelligence to drive collective impact at the back end of what is what has undeniably been and continues to be an extremely challenging time for the world. But I think it's one where we have seen the amazing things that that collective groups can do when they come together to focus on a specific mission. And in in this case, kind of getting on top of a global pandemic and new ways of working and all the tragedy, but also the opportunity that wraps around all of that. So, you know, I think the theme from my perspective is sort of regenerative futures. Um, And and it captures a, we can capture a lot in all of that. Mm. So actually, let's talk a bit about your background, because you've built an entire company and career on helping people to better collaborate and innovate together. What initially moved you to set up Wazoku? A moment of inspired madness. <laughs> like I, if, I, if I look back, and, and that was late 2011, so it feels like multiple lifetimes ago. 
yeah. in many senses. There are probably a, a couple of a couple of motivations that led this idea. You know, I'm I'm in the business of of ideas and very much understand that it's rarely you know you rarely have one idea that you just run with. So at the start of this, I had a number of different plates spinning, a number of different problems that we were wrestling with that we thought we could potentially bring you know new solutions to 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 help solve you know systemic challenges. But I just really liked this nascent obvious gap in the market that we didn't treat ideas very well yet everything starts with an idea and so mm-hmm. trying to build a solution that could help us to you know foster the brilliance of of diversity and human capability by aligning it with a you know a, a good piece of technology and and some good structure could add huge value for the world and help us to you know better solve problems through engaging those those smart minds right and so mm-hmm. That's why we started. I think that's still quite a consistent piece of our mission and the things that we focus on. But it's certainly evolved over the the, the nine years of of being in business and you know underpinned but still by this real kind of core focus and core purpose of helping to just make the world a better place one idea at a time. And you mentioned about the the ways in which we're going to have to start to regenerate our systems, our workplaces, our communities coming out of this crisis. And of course, it's taking much longer than I think a lot of people anticipated and certainly longer than any of us hoped for. What are some of the things that we can take from your experience of innovation that we can use in our own lives to help collaborate, to come up with, I don't know, greater resilience for our local community or whatever it might be? Yeah, another another small question there. <laughs> I think part of this is the power of the human mind to, you know, to adapt and to to live through change has been consistently tested. And we live in a, you know, we live in a world where change has become much more constant. Mm. But then in the last 12 months, we've had that, you know, really thrust upon us in a in a way that that none of us could could never have imagined. For most people um, in the Western world, you know, we've not had the reality of deep pandemics like this as a constant for us, nor have we had to live through you know similar like war times or other things right on our right in our backyard so it's been a bit of a cultural shift for this generation though I think for others in the world it's more of a norm and there's a lot we can learn from those existing parts of the world that perhaps we don't pay as much attention to as we should who perhaps have dealt with some of this better than we have as well but you we do have to be pretty proud of the way that you know, for all the failings that come out of this, right? It's very easy to have 2020 hindsight and look back at and criticize on this, but it's extraordinarily complex. Yet people have come together and we've we've done things that I, you know, I, I really I really advocate for in in some small ways. I've come together as communities mm. um, at a very local, you know, solving problems at a local level, but also trying to work together at a more macro level, sort of waving competition out of the way and and, and other things at least in part, to sort of develop this wartime mentality and, and try and drive proper system-based solutions through things. Now, the challenge is, can we, can we continue to do so? Because I think this isn't going to be a roll out a vaccine and, and fix the world. This is going to live with us, you know, probably going forward, more like some of the common diseases that we're, that we're more familiar with. It's not just going to go away and it's going to change the way that we work, change the way that we live, change the way that we think mm. more profoundly than probably people are still Many people, I think, are still are still considering. Right? There isn't there isn't an end to this. I don't believe that's not not overtly negative in in its overtones. I don't think because we will learn and adapt as people do to to live with it and to um, and to function around it. That's so curious. And actually, you framing the fact that we're going to have to live with this going forward in that particular way. It's something which I hadn't actually considered. And I think you're right. I mean, 
you know, we look at the ways in which we can now be inoculated against flus or treat the particularly awful aspects of when people get sick, whether it's pneumonia or what have you. There are ways to treat these things, but of course, there are still ongoing risks. And actually, when I think about pandemics and we look at the biodiversity research and the links of encroachment into wild territories um, and into wild species, the impact that that human action has on our exposure to more viruses in the future, which could yield to further pandemics, we do really have to think about changing the system now, changing relationships now to building in greater resilience. And so I wonder with the work that you've done with Wazoku, what have been some of the most inspiring success stories of change? And it doesn't have to be obviously pandemic related because we're still going through this, but in terms of the change you've seen people birth to solve a particularly challenging problem. Yeah, and I, and I would say on that previous point, that those are very much my opinions, right? I'm not, it is not my domain area of expertise <laughs> there. You know, others, others will have different viewpoints on it. But I think if we can... If we can anchor on that as you know as a worst case, and if it's better than that, then great. Then um, mm. then then that really helps us. And I think that that's a lot of the work that that I do, and a lot of the work that we're trying to do with people is that we've developed um, as a relative standard in the Western world, and perhaps beyond that, quite a quite a short term lens on many things that we consider about. You know, we kind of exist in the here and now, and maybe mm. in the very near near term in front of us but trying to anchor on something much further away and you know that's why I really like this this kind of concept as regenerative futures where I can imagine anchoring on something where we don't have to mine any new you know natural resources where we, can, we we've mined everything and we can reuse and repurpose things and the role that innovation and human ingenuity and creativity plays in all of that so I appreciate I didn't answer your question but it sort of led me in a thought path of um <laughs> that took me in a slightly different direction. Apologies. But that's fascinating, the idea of regenerative futures. And also another concept that I hadn't really considered was what might it actually look like if we didn't have access to or chose not to mine new materials, if we had to find ways to repurpose or reimagine new things that we could potentially synthesise. I mean, then you're in my favourite domain of kind of the sci-fi world of, I don't know, programmable matter. I've been watching Star Trek Discovery and there's so many concepts that I just want to happen now so that we can get ahead and and have new ways of innovating and creating. But yeah, so the question, I guess I was asking about the success stories, but maybe I'll link it to the fantastic book that you co-wrote with Alpheus Bingham, who is the founder of Innocentive, which if you're listening and you want to know about it, it's a company that has helped make some really fascinating large advances in medicine and space travel and oil spill cleanup and more. And they've got 500,000 people uh, in a solver network to help deal with some of these challenges. You guys wrote a book called One Smart Crowd, which celebrates the people behind some of the most impactful ideas that we've seen within humanity. Do you want to speak a bit to that, maybe why you wrote it and what it's about? Sure. And, and I, I, will, I will sort of try and weave in some answers to your other questions so there's a there's a mm. decent flow through this conversation and <laughs> we're not sort of talking across each other a little bit but Innocentive as you just introduced was a nice adjunct so we we actually purchased we acquired the Innocentive business back in last summer summer 2020 so bang in the middle of a pandemic no opportunity to go out and travel you know we did what all good sensible British-based businesses were doing went and bought a US company <laughs> but for me the opportunity of, of adding in this immensely brilliant external crowd of, of diverse innovators and problem solvers on top of the the work that we do predominantly as a software company to sort of facilitate the the, the platform process and capability elements of, of how do you do innovation collaboratively and openly and, and, and sort of with a 
with the right um, with the right structures to it just resonated really strongly and when we bought that company I looked at you know this this amazing group of almost half a million people from around the world and some of the stories that were being told and and just thought that it was a story that had to be told right so it really is a celebration and a recognition of the incredible capacity of the global human mind to solve complex innovation challenges and what's really fascinating about a lot of the people that the book tells the stories of and this isn't an academic book it's a it's a it's a human-centered book telling the motivations and the background stories to 50 of the you know the thousands of people that have solved these challenges over the years what motivated them why did they do it and 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 what kind of led them to solving the problem is that in many cases their domain expertise does not lie in the area of the problem that they solve you know you, you gave an example of an oil spill earlier and two decade old problem of, a, of, of an oil spill up in Canada that, that, you know, great minds and engineers and others hadn't been able to figure out how to get the oil out of these frozen waters. Mm. And, and we're looking for a, for a solution to do so. And the person that solved it, you know, it wasn't the job they took, they, they'd chosen to go and do. It wasn't their area of domain expertise now. It was something they'd seen in a summer job back when they were a teenager that came back into their psyche and just piqued their interest and led to you know, a problem that the people who you would normally go to who are trying to solve this problem were suddenly, you know, met with with this with this non-expert expert, if you like, who who helped them to solve a problem. It averted, you know, a long-standing climate climate disaster. It solved a problem, and it wouldn't have been ever the person you would have gone to ask to help to solve it. And there are thousands of examples of of this where it's brilliant generalists, which is maybe without the brilliant is where I'd put myself, <laughs> all singing or dancing generalists with no real skills, have a really strong place to play in the world when it comes to, you know, spotting opportunities and solving problems without necessarily having this really strong CV to say, I'm, I'm the person that can solve this problem for you. It is interesting, this ability to broaden the lens or open the aperture to be able to see qualities and experiences that are not on your CV, that you're not trained necessarily for, that nonetheless enrich the way in which you perceive the world, interact with the world and solve for these complex problems. And in fact, one of the things that I'm curious to ask more about, if we circle back to the sustainability piece, which is something that, that I know that you're really interested in, is the fact that you guys at Wazoku are now becoming B Corp certified. And so I'm, I'm really interested to ask what motivated you to start the journey towards becoming a B Corp. So we've taken a number of steps, right? And I, I think one of the things that I spend a lot of time reflecting on and thinking about is what is the role and what is the duty of a of a CEO and of the C level within within the types of organizations that we work with, which are mostly large multinational Fortune 2000 complex organizations. And you know, I have to as a you know the founder of a of an SME business that's a lot smaller than these, but work very closely with them, try and take my seat at the table and, and think about. What do we? What are they dealing with? What are we? What should they be dealing with? And how can I? How the best way to empathise is to learn, right? And mm. to and to think about. It. So flip flip that on its head. Also, is as a founder, what's why do I do this, right? Why do I put blood, sweat, and tears? You know, there's a thousand and one things I could have chosen to have done every day since 2011 when I did this. But this is this is the work that we're doing. And I think if you don't do that with with a with a really strong purpose behind it that you're you know you're going to struggle. So those two worlds kind of kind of collided over over the last couple of years and um and me really thinking about you know not just are we delivering good software to drive you know decent outcomes but how do we layer a a for 
profit and for purpose layer into not just the work that, that we do as Wazoku, but to the work that our customers do alongside us in, in driving that. And, and for me, we have to walk the talk on that, right? And that was, that was the bit. So it was, a, it was a bit of my never-ending curiosity of wanting to learn. It's only part of the plan, right? B Corp is not a solution to a problem. It's a step in a direction. And I think that for me, forward-looking, agile-minded businesses that, that are looking to drive like collective impacts need to recognize that there's no one big silver bullet to all of this. There are a number of steps. And I like B Corp because it's a, a movement. I like B Corp, quite frankly, from our perspective, because technology companies are not on the whole considering and looking at this as an option. It's, you know, it's kind of more like looked at as a, as a sort of retail and branding opportunity, I think, for for you know, businesses like Abel and Cole or, or similar type of companies. And, mm. and so there's only still a relatively small number of businesses that have got behind it, but it's, it's growing and it's evolving and it's got, you know, it's got a strong purpose message behind it. So it's a part of our plan. It is not, it is not the whole plan. Do you then see outside of, you know, obviously the brands that you've mentioned, maybe moving more into the tech sector and beyond, do you see a great appetite in companies to find solutions for issues around the climate, around inclusion, and broadly things that will help them to become more resilient for the long haul? Well, I think, let me tackle this a little bit a little bit differently, right? And maybe I could answer one of your previous questions through this <laughs> as well, is, um, is what we, last year, we chunked this down in the kind of good, agile way that businesses should tackle these big, complex problems and said, look, B Corps are a part of our plan, and it's going to take us some time to get there. And I'll, yeah, I'll be very honest, it, it is a journey, right? It's a journey that you've got to do a lot of work internally to set yourself up for it. You've got to be assessed and accredited, which is kind of where we are right now. But you've also got to get your board and your shareholders on board. And lots of that's an education piece, right? Mm. I kind of took it for granted that we would get the support that we needed. But actually, most people, you know, our shareholders and, and board weren't familiar with this, right? It felt like a risk. It felt like an unnecessary risk in some ways. And it took some time to educate and get them on board. And back to that story around empathy, is you know, walking that walk and really starting to dig into it lets me walk in the shoes of other people and think how we can start to enable it. But before that, we, um, we made a commitment that was actually inspired by one of our competitors, right? A lot of these things are not competitive issues, they're societal issues. Mm. And so we have to stop thinking about these as, or not start thinking about these as competitive differentiation points, but, but as important things that collectively we should all be doing. So one of our competitors in the US achieved carbon neutral status. We, I immediately, you know, they put a call out on LinkedIn, so is, is, is there anybody else that would like to learn from us, follow in our suite? We'd like, you know, we see a chance to get our industry to be there the first carbon neutral industry. And I, interestingly, from what they told me, was the first and only one from our space to jump on that and say, yes, we'll, we'll wow. join you. And so we, we, we helped and we learned from them, you know, and, and a US-based competitor and achieved that, that carbon neutral status last year, which is very hard to do for a company. It's not, and this is where it feeds into one of your previous questions, which is a very long answer, I apologize, is as you go through this, one of the things you have to, first of all, work out is, how much carbon do you produce as a company, right? Which, which is probably blinding the obvious, but once you start to peel that onion back, you realize that most of the answer in that lies in someone else's um, domain because it's all about where do you buy your products from and what is the mm. carbon footprint of one of those products? And that's everything from a, a laptop to like a KitKat or something, right? It's like, what is the carbon <laughs> footprint of any of the things that you, that you buy into the office? And so 
then it starts to fold in your into your supply chain. It's in, it's implicitly systemic. And so there are so many bits of this that we can't impact real change unless we can get a system of change mm. to start working for us. And therefore, to go back to that previous question of someone that's done something quite good, right? You, you pick, pick a space, right? So I quite like the, we did some work a couple of years ago with a small Danish construction business. I can't pronounce it, so I won't try. <laughs> uh, and, um, but, you know, there's a case study of it on our, on our website. And I'm happy to share it with anybody that did an upcycle challenge for uh, waste coming from the construction and demolition industry. And to put that in context, the construction and demolition industry creates more than two times the waste of conventional waste outside of construction. So it's a real contributor to, to landfill and, and, and other things as well. Not necessarily always front page news. You know, we focus on the plastics we throw away and other things, but, but actually knocking things down and not knowing what to do with afterwards is a you know, is a is a real challenge for the world and, and bigger in many senses than others. So they, this this company ran a upcycle challenge looking for sustainable ways to upcycle waste from from the construction industry. And we helped them to run a crowdsourcing challenge on that that was open to anybody that would be interested in forming a new business off the back of it. There were loads of great ideas and the winning idea saved 40,000 metric tons of CO2, created a wow. new company creating upcycled bike sheds in, in Denmark. You know, it's a big biking country and you know, took that waste that would otherwise have gone to landfill and turned it into, into new business and you know, a regenerative future for that aggregate. Right? And I think that's, that sort of answers lots of different questions in one, but it's all about that <laughs> What do you build in? What do you put through? And what do you throw away that you could reuse is, um, is a big part of why we're doing this, why we're learning and why we're tasking our customers to think in the same way. That's extraordinary. And I think actually when you, when you talk about peeling back the onion and seeing the layers and layers and layers of connected actions that are not sustainable, that add to the problem, and then really realising the detail and scale and complexity of the issue, I think part of it the hardest part maybe is also just confronting that reality and then finding ways to change behaviours, change how we, we value certain things in order to get the buy-in of enough parties to be able to make real change. So as you're mentioning KitKat, I was thinking about um, BrewDog, the beer brewing company, which started out in the UK and of course now is worldwide, and how they've actually become, I think they've become the first beer brewing manufacturer that is carbon negative. You know, so then immediately you have one example that you can point towards and say, okay, well, if we're going to do, I don't know, six o'clock drinks on a Friday at work, we can work with these people. But that's just one isolated example. If you're talking about having to completely rethink and redesign supply chains, that takes time as well. Yeah, and, and, and it takes commitment. And typically you go to beer, I go to chocolate bars. But um, <laughs> um, and, it, and it takes a system, right? And I think that's why we're, we're really, really focused on helping companies to take this leap from mm you know, trying to problem solve for a specific event, which is typically how innovation and, and problem solving happens at the moment, right? Which is I have a problem and now I'm going to scramble together and try and solve it. COVID's like that. To, you know, building broad scale capability across people and teams and organizations that, that enables us to do this a little bit more uh, by nature that then folds into an innovation system, right? I think we've got to stop thinking about innovation as this standalone peripheral activity and work out how to upgrade our innovation operating system to make it a part of the way that we work and much more a part of our DNA. And I think that the, the good thing about the sustainability and regenerative futures piece is 
it's much easier in many ways for people to empathize with that and understand how innovation plays alongside sustainability far more than I think we can with the sort of business as usual tracts that we've had so well ingrained into us by by corporate process and bureaucracy and everything else. And when you're talking about innovation, are there any specific mistakes that you see companies make that stop them from building out that capability? <laughs> there's, there's, there's lots, I think. <laughs> um, yeah, I was... Um, I was talking to a professor from a business school yesterday that, you know, we were, we were sort of musing over the lack of, of really good education, you know, starts there, right? Education mm-hmm. around innovation and, 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 you know, all the business thinking we get, it's like, it, it's, it's not really a core component yet. It absolutely should be and must be from a, you know, from a building shareholder value. But probably the biggest challenge really is that, as I said earlier, is that we, We've, we've got into short-termist cycles. You know, the average tenure of CEOs is getting smaller. The, you know, the, the judgment of shareholders and share prices is, is all over the show. You know, whether it's government cycles or whether it's election cycles or whether it's just the judgment of an open model in terms of everyone's got access to everything all the time, it's just made us really short-termist. And I think that we've got to try and find a way to build in, you know, these longer-term anchors that allow us to be more more adaptive and more flexible, but still think and invest for the long term. And you can't fix this stuff overnight. The biggest challenge that faces C-level and CEOs right now is, is really how to get out of the short-termist, reactive, firefighting mode that lots of businesses are in mm. and build this more into the core of how we work going forward. It's not easy. Mm. And I think especially, as you say, if you're in a, a more Western individualistic culture and you're, you're splitting your financial year into quarters, I mean, that's not even... That's every three months, you're having to come back to your shareholders and say, we are making gains in profit or whatever it is. That's a really specific way (laughs) to reinforce the kinds of decision making that are going to be specific to the short term benefit over long term outcomes. Exactly, which is why I think this purpose piece, right? So if you look at the, the four pillars that underpin us, we've got people, platform, process and purpose, right? This kind of nice sort of, um, these nice four Ps of, um, of everything that have been somewhat scuppered by the fifth P of pandemic, <laughs> but 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 maybe not scuppered. Maybe maybe it's a, a a massive opportunity. But I think that purpose bit is the bit that um, again can be that longer term anchor as long as you commit to it and it's more than just words on the page. I feel somewhat that there's been a a more seismic shift in aspects of society that will drive that to be so. So in that same conversation with a professor yesterday, he gave me an example of a guest lecturer that they'd had last year who'd come and spoke and he's like Look, this, this guy did a fantastic job did a really good presentation but at the end of it was was given terrible um, grades by the students and the reason was not that the students weren't impressed with the lecture that he'd given it's that every day the guy had flown back home to his house and then flown back again the next day and the students downgraded him because they felt that he was not being you know he didn't need to do that and it was environmentally unsustainable to, to work in that way and that wasn't part of what he was talking about. It was an innovation talk, not a sustainability talk. But that mindset of the sort of next working generation, I think, has really changed more profoundly wow. than perhaps we understand. And that people are prepared to, you know, to downgrade on things that aren't necessarily relevant to the specific thing you just did based on your actions rather than your words. That's really kind of quite profound in my mind, mm. that example. That's a really striking example, I think, for a couple of reasons. So one of them, you know, at the moment I'm researching this new book which explores changing consumer behaviours and also what we value. And on the flip side, because actually many of us, myself absolutely included, 
have been reliant, heavily reliant, on being able to transport ourselves to multiple locations using planes in order to be able to to make a living, to give talks. And so on the one hand, you have this emerging trend of greater accountability, wanting to be able to uh, make sure that you're living in alignment with your values, not just in the personal sphere, but also at work. So if that means being sustainable, how does that translate in terms of the ethos of the company that's employing you or that you're running? And then on the flip side, you know, how we have taken for granted and ignored the consequences of this easy traveling and this this ability to just, quote unquote, magic ourselves to a different location, which of course isn't magic and has a, a huge cost. Do you think that this shift in values uh, is something that we're seeing more generally, not just in younger generations, but is it trickling up as well? I mean, I, I hope so. Like I said, I'm I'm trying to lead from the front in terms of, of my organization around all of these issues, but also in quite a reflective way, right? You know, I, I don't I don't stand and bang the drum to tell the team what they should be doing or how we should be doing it. You know, I've I've allowed this to sort of organically happen. But to be honest with you, I I don't know, because I think a lot of this change has really profoundly come into the psyche over the last 12 months and I've barely yeah. left the house in the last 12 months so I'm subject <laughs> to mostly the you know the, the 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 information vacuums that I live in um yeah. but I hope so right I think there are there are there are certainly green shoots around all of this as one indication that may or may not count for anything typically uh the B Corp process is a few, it's a few months they're currently running a few more months behind because of over demand right they hadn't wow. anticipated the demand that they would got and i think that you know maybe that makes me a bit of a cliche in the last few months and and if so so be it right it's uh, it's, it's not really about that but i think it it does show that there are more people because this isn't a small thing right you have to you have to change your you're legally required as a B Corp to consider impacts um, of your decision on your on on your broad stakeholders, so you change your company articles. It's not just a box ticking exercise. It's a it's a legal thing, and so companies have to be doing that with their directors and and senior teams on board and their shareholders on board. So I, I use that as a little indicator, mm-hmm. but to be honest, I don't know. Right? I just think it's more. I think it's got more stickiness and it's more of a leap than than the previous generations or iterations of of of, of a lot of this topic. It is a nice indication seeing that people are taking up the opportunities that exist now to actually take a step in that direction. And I wonder moving forward if we're going to see these sorts of ideas baked into the way that companies are built from the ground up. I'm encouraged to think that we will. I'm also encouraged to to think that it it won't be a side function, even though it may need a function around it, but become much more of a C-level topic that's sort of distilled down into the, the very fabric of an organisation and, and the way that it the way that it operates, you know, every time something's quite functional and and, um, and sort of works in a work stream, it's it never quite feels as meshed and quite as integrated as it needs to. Innovation's another classic example of that. You've got to find a way to bake it right into the heart of of what you're all about. And I think, therefore, the you know the the need of businesses to attract future talent, you know, whether whether the walk and the talk is good internally or not, has to be. A good barometer for this because I think that mm. people will be increasingly selective about the types of businesses that they that they join where there's options right I think that that, that will that will drive more and more of this as we as the workplace evolves and I have another question which I wasn't necessarily going to weave in but I th- I'm really 
intrigued to see what your answer might be. So a lot of people have been talking about the role that capitalism and consumerism is playing in the ways in which we consume and that we use up resources and the ways that we talk about the living world in terms of natural capital or relationships as human capital, etc. That everything's seen through the economic lens. And I wonder what your thoughts are about the role that capitalism in general plays in terms of how we build forward in terms of sustainability? Like, do we need to redesign the whole system, do you think? Or do you think there are ways in which we can change how capitalism works to incentivize different behaviours? On, on the one hand, the believer in the free market kicks into me when I'm, when I'm asked that question. However, on the other hand, um, and there's a, you know, there's a business idea that's not really a capitalist business idea, it's more of a change idea that's been brewing around in my mind for years around uh, which which really looks at the wealth gap, right? And I think that's a problem that we've got to really, really tackle. And you know, probably one of the, um, of a small number of very seismic gaps that we've got, or problems that we've really got to figure out how to tackle, right? There is too much wealth in too few people's hands. Um, and from from traditionally being a believer in, you know, in smaller governments, low, lighter regulation and more free market me- mechanisms, I think, you know, we do have to think about how we how we redistribute that 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 wealth to create more equality. There's really good case studies. There's really good countries that, you know, that, that manage this effectively. But it's huge. Right. And that but it, but if we do not, then everywhere you've seen a, you know, a minority majority as in, you know, the, the long tail is bigger than the, than, than, than the head of the tail, you get problems. And we're approaching a global tipping point on that that I think will, will necessitate a rethink, right? Whether it has to be a drastic overhaul or not, whether that's likely. But, it, you know, it comes back to the, the most ultimate of all collaborations, which is that's one big global effort. And, it, and that's going to take a hell, of a, a hell of a shift. And, you know, hopefully that's not a revolution that causes that. But I do think that we're not too many generations away from having to 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 really look hard at this and think differently about how we how we tackle it. And it's such a thorny thorny issue. I mean, one of the things that I was I was listening yesterday over lunch to um, one of Stephen Fry's episodes. He's done a, a series called The Seven Deadly Sins, and he was talking about avarice or greed and the popularity surge that Ayn Rand's books enjoyed. Uh, when the 2008 financial crisis hit. And of course, she's quite an interesting, very divisive figure. Um, Yeah, she gets cited a lot by a lot of people who are more along the free market kind of um, libertarian end of the spectrum. And what was fascinating when he was talking about her popularity and the ways in which we think about economy is that we do have this sense of the right of the individual trumping all else. And of course, we forget, at least sort of this is the, the, the thing that comes to mind for me, we forget that individuals exist within a social fabric. And if the social fabric is collapsing and is impoverished to the extent where individuals then can't function, then that isn't just a social problem, it's an individual problem as well. So whatever way you look at it, we have to tackle the inequality that exists within the systems that we create, because if we don't, everyone from the individual to society to the global community will suffer as a result. I mean, maybe that's just me drawing that connection, but I find it quite shocking that other people don't make that connection. Yeah, I, th- I think the other thing that I, area that I find, I think maybe they're kind of correlated or, or maybe not, is the link between 
the need to create opportunities for people and the need to personalize those opportunities in a way that we've we've traditionally not done. Right? We we sort of push you through the sausage factory, give you a label at the end of it and send you off to go and do something. I think we have to mm. we have to change. That is changing and we've got to change our mindset around the abilities, capabilities and, and skills of people. I think that's one of the things that came out of the book, right? It's like what are the intrinsic motivations for people around the world to have joined this crowd of innovators and then to participate in these in these innovation calls. And it's, you know, it kind of digs into elements of human psychology and, and, and other things. And there's a real mixed bag, but money features for people that are lower down the Maslowian pyramid of just, you know, I lost mm-hmm. my job and this was, or I, and I was low on, on, on self-esteem and other things. And this was a way that I found that, but there are many other reasons why people participate. And, you know, we've made we've made money this definition of if, of success and, and, and all that goes with it. And, and you know, that's, that's not really true for most people, right? I think it's a, it's a very different thing. And those, those intrinsic motivations in individuals, they're true. We've, we've manufactured them in teams and in leadership and in other ways. And we need to, we need to address that change in psychology, um, which again is complicated because the system's been set up to think and structure it differently. Mm-hmm. It's interesting. Um, for our interview, I was I was speaking with another writer, thinker, and someone who's also got extensive experience in the corporate space. So in terms of buildings and what have you, and he was telling me that one of the things that was interesting to him was one of the CEOs that he worked with once he'd attained the corner office, you know, in this sky rise in New York, and he'd got his his own personal secretary and he'd got his parking space with his name on it, etc. All these extrinsic signifiers of authority and success. He was faced with the question, well, what now? And what does success actually mean to me? And I think this is a very classic example of ways in which we we keep going forward to obtain signifiers or symbols of success. We, we strive for these goals. And when we arrive there, we realise if we have the fortune to get there that they're just external. They don't fulfil some deeper, more yearning aspect of what it means to feel fulfilled or to be flourishing or to be thriving. Do you think that we're seeing people ask this question more at the moment? I think people are reflecting more. Um, maybe if I apply that, that lens a little bit to some of the work that we that we see and do is um, one of you know one of the challenges around innovation writ large is this dichotomy between it's this specialist generalist question again right so it's like if you've trained for years and you are you know a specialist you've got your PhD and everything else then and if you can't solve this problem how can some generalist out in out in the mm-hmm. world possibly solve this problem that you and, and also if they do have you failed right are you you know, you're you're the expert. You were hired to do this, and the reality is that you know time and time and time again, the diversity of opinion trumps the specialist. But that doesn't mean the specialist has failed, right? You, no one person is the bastion of all solutions to all problems, no matter how specialist they are. And also, framing a problem differently can bring different solutions in. That we we just helped a global pharmaceutical company that was was having uh, some challenges with a specific drug to do a, a you know, crowdsource a hypothesis as to as to what the what the cause might be, what the root cause might be. Behind the scenes for you know nine months, some of the best minds in this space have been working on it with all of the information. And in 30 days, a crowd of generalists with 10% of the information came up with the same set of hypotheses as these experts, wow. right? With with 90% less info or 10% of the info that they had and in a fraction of the time. And we see this time and time again that you can you know, the crowd can can predict better, can 
So it's you know, four to five times faster, it's eight to 10 times cheaper, and that enables you to pull risk forward and push costs back. And you know that's seismic if you can get this right, but you've got to get over this hubris of I'm the person that's, that's paid to solve this mm-hmm. problem, and you're the person that's paid to help to solve this problem, and that's a, that's a different, different mindset. So I'm curious what you, what you think might be some of the most exciting changes or innovations that might emerge from this crisis. <laughs> That's, uh, Is it too early to say? I mean, I think, I think we live in a world where there are just so many great things that are, that are emerging. You know, I, in some ways, I think we have to find a hybrid between the world that we knew and, um, and the world that we, we're going to step back out into um, as we as we go forward, I think that there are huge lessons that can be learned. As I said right right early in this conversation, from you know parts of the world that deal with some of the challenges that we've been dealing with globally, but really as as, as a Western world more on a more regular basis. Right, I think that part of this will be a refocus on those types of topics, and that hopefully are coming together as a global community in a world that felt like it was you know was was stepping back into more more nationalist boundaries again, hopefully that's a, that's, that's a change, right? And hopefully that, that's something that's, that's kicked us out. We're going to continue with the pace of technology change. We're going to continue with, with the evolution of, of, of augmenting machine and people. And, and, you know, whether you think that's positive or negative, I think there will be lots that, of good things that come out of it. Probably for me, this, this, the single biggest thing is really anchoring on this whole thing of regenerative futures. And I think there is a there is so much that we can do, right? I think you know, the, the, you know there's a, there's this whole debate around plastics, and and actually, if you dig into it, it's it's a it's another multi layered debate. But actually, really think about that, right? Right back to the to the basics of um, of how we how we deal with um, this regenerative futures. Um, story and I, you know, I I stripped this back in my mind recently to something really simple like the packaging you get around a sandwich that you buy from Waitrose or or, or from the supermarket that currently isn't recyclable because mm. the you, know, you can't easily separate plastic from paper and therefore if you and if you don't do that it doesn't get recycled right so therein is this huge systemic challenge that's really like boiled back down to the basics of like crap, my sandwich packaging isn't recyclable, which if you care about the, you know, the whole piece of it, that, you can extrapolate that out and out and out and yeah. out. And I think that that's the piece for me that's like, we've got to boil this right back and start thinking about like, the things we do every day. What do we need to change in them? Because even then, what happens to it next and what happens to it? And we don't know, right? We feel good because we put it in the, in the green bin, not the black bin, and we, and we kind of walk away and pat ourselves on the back that we've done our job. But, but actually, it doesn't, the system's fully broken. And so I hope that we can get more of a mindset around that and start to tackle these problems piece by piece, bit by bit. And then, yeah, we can start to, you know, hopefully save the world one idea at a time and certainly if not change it more from that very local level upwards. Mm. So I want to ask you if there is a book that you would recommend that everybody reads and why? I mean, the obvious answer is they should read One Smart Crowd by Simon Hill and Alpheus Bingham. Um, but that's probably a little bit self-serving. Um, <laughs> what other books should they read in addition to that one? <laughs> uh, I mean, there are no others, Natalie. That's, that, that's really it. There's a book that I'm reading at the moment that I really like, which is called Invisible Solutions by a, uh, a friend of mine um, called Steve Shapiro, who built and ran the uh, innovation practice at Accenture and now is an author and a kind of Hall of Fame speaker. Um, what, what Steve looks at is the art of, of framing a good question and framing a good problem and you know I think that if we don't get the question right we'll never get the answer right and so this book is a you know it provides you with a really kind of hands-on 
set of tools to to start thinking about you know different lenses for for framing problems. And I used an analogy yesterday in a post that I made on on LinkedIn around that problems come with with the lens that you are tasked to think about and deal with. So if you're in marketing, you have marketing type problems, but they're often multi-layered. And so mm-hmm. my analogy was a little bit like when you sit in the optician's chair and they put those those little lenses in front of you and ask which one's better. And normally they're layered on top of each other, right? We're trying to find the best focus in our problem that covers all of those lenses, not just the one person's bias lens that they're that they're dealing with. So that's a long answer to Steve Shapiro's Invisible Solutions book, but it's it's well worth a read. Brilliant. I shall add that into the show notes page. So if I were to ask you what you'd like your legacy to be, how might you begin to answer that? I think that, honestly, I don't know the answer to that question at the moment, right? I think I'm still partway through a discovery journey. And I'm very, I'm very open and honest with my team that, you know, maybe naively or otherwise, that you know, we don't have all the answers and we're still working a lot of things out. I firmly believe that if we can have moved the dial on how we think about and manage the way that we evolve and change our organizations and the reasons we do those for driving impacts into broader society and our kind of ways of working that you know that will have been a you know a reasonably good impact that we, that we could have had but i think we're only partway through the journey and so it will you know this will form itself this will keep going i think what what i am proud of at the moment is that there's a you know there's a constant core that underpins all the things that we've done right we're not inconsistent I don't flip-flop but I'm you know I'm growing and learning as a human being and I'm very open-minded and maybe that's it right is that I I I just maintain this very open-minded approach to to the challenges that we're facing and and I'm willing to be wrong and proven to be so um, and adapt that mindset as we go I don't have this necessarily big legacy view right now I think it's much more about micro activities and and you know trying to adapt and learn to do the right things mm. and I guess also within that is the the idea that one can model an openness and vulnerability and allow other people to feel okay taking that same approach so that then we can share and create more more openly together yeah I mean probably at the heart of everything that I believe is that we're better if we collaborate. We're better if we're open. We're better if we share, um, and we're you know, and, and we're better if we solve the right problems together. Mm-hmm. So, some somewhere in all of that is is, a, is an answer to your question that I haven't yet thought of. <laughs> and so, speaking of questions, if you were going to give people a question that they could dwell with right now, what would that be? There's this, you know, the, the concept of exponential change. I think is one that is quite hard for us to sometimes get our get our heads around, but. If we were to start thinking about um, this topic of, of, of you know, collective impact and regenerative futures and think about every time you go to throw something away, whether there is an alternative to that and what's going to happen to it and how can we find a better way to assume that, let's assume that raw material can never be mined again. So either we're, mm-hmm. it's going to become extinct, which you know, we're, we're quite familiar with that theme from a, a nature perspective, but don't necessarily think about it from a resources perspective. Let's start thinking about how we can adapt and challenge society, challenge you know our our governments and our and the things that happen around us to to enable us to think about each one of these things as very rare, precious um, commodities or, or otherwise, so that we can start to enact small bits of change. Right? I think if you can bring that into your everyday lives 
and just start to think about it in a slightly less abstract way that it can move move us forward. And certainly checking out things like talks by people like Bill McCulloch and, and real proponents and exponents of this type of thinking is 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 well worth you know a starting point for people as they start to start to contemplate some of those some of those big questions. Mm. And I was actually going to ask you one thing that people can do to start moving in that direction, but you've just given some nice examples there. So in that case, I'd like to end with this question, which is what vision of the world are you holding for others? I think I partly answered that already in some of the things that, that I've said. Right, I have a real belief in the innate creativity, capability of people. And I, I think that, you know, we... We get manoeuvred and, and moved to think in ways that sometimes we don't necessarily know why or, or how. And that's not a, it's not a criticism. I'm, I'm guilty of it mm. as well. Like I said, we exist in, in certain vacuums. And so I hope that, you know, we can start to start to come more together. And, and you know, I, I recently signed a CEO Action for Diversity pledge and, and really put, you know, that alongside, you know, part of the B Corp and part of everything else. And really thinking about that that inclusive message, right? How can we be more inclusive and how can we get people to think in a much more inclusive way? We've become a little bit too divisive and and, and not as accepting as, as a world. So I'm hopeful that as a planet we, you know, we've we've shown that we can be collectively responsible, that we can drive collective impact in recent times and, and hopefully that drives a more kind of local first but global mindseted set of inclusive actions and activities going forward. Well, folks, thanks for listening to the Hive podcast. That's a wrap for season five. I'm now off to finish writing my book and to line up some exciting guests for the new season, which will be making an appearance in spring. In the meantime, if you want to stay up to date with news of upcoming interviews, projects and events, you can sign up to my newsletter at natalinahyde.com or follow me on Twitter or Instagram at natalinahai. As always, to find out more about today's guest and topics, you can visit the show notes page at natalinahai.com forward slash The Hive Podcast. And if you enjoyed the show, please do give it a rating and a review. My thanks to the brilliant Caro C for producing. Thank you for listening. And I look forward to sharing more with you next season. Mm-hmm.